everyone and welcome back. Um, firstly, I just want to apologise for the absolutely huge gap that you've just had in episodes. Um, I've had a crazy few months of uni work and being unwell and just general um, pandemic stuff. Um, but I'm very excited to be in the final year of my PhD now. However, this does mean that I'm going to have a lot more work. This next year is going to be very, very intense and there's lots of deadlines and not much free time, unfortunately. So I think um, what's going to work out best in terms of regular content is probably if I just move it to monthly episodes. Um, I think weekly at the minute, it's just not going to happen. So rather than promise you weekly and you not get it, I'm going to just try and aim for one, one a month um which I hope everybody still enjoys and I promise if I find that any extra time um I will try and uh squeeze like an extra episode in a little bonus um yeah uh so as well as that something that I just wanted to quickly mention because I've had a lot of messages from people asking like where I've gone and things um and I feel like maybe I need to be a little bit more um honest I don't know open um and I wasn't going to mention it and then I realised actually that September actually is awareness month for two health conditions that I actually had. So I thought that I'd just quickly talk about them, maybe do a little bit of an awareness chat, some signs and some symptoms um, and just kind of explain why sometimes I disappear for two months at a time. Um if it isn't your cup of tea to listen to health things, totally understand. If you're just here for the true crime, that's fine. I'd say skip ahead probably about 10 minutes um, and that should get you through all of this um, upcoming health chat. Okay, for those of you that are still here. So just a quick explanation as to why sometimes I can't record for a few weeks at a time. Um, unfortunately, in 2016, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, which I... I sort of still have it's a bit complicated um I guess I'm ugh, I'm just waiting to be um like all clear I'm not in active treatment it's just very 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 slow growing um cancer so it's very difficult to get rid of um and actually September is thyroid cancer awareness month I know I'm cutting the mark quite fine because it's today is the 30th of September but um better late than never um so I thought that I'd just share quickly um, a little bit about what to watch out for and what to do if you have symptoms because thyroid cancer is very well I mean I'm, I'm going to assume it's very unknown I didn't even know that it existed when I got diagnosed with it so that's kind of um, shows you how unknown it is but cases are rising steadily year on year particularly in women and particularly in women that are in their like 20s to um 50s I think 20s to 30s tends to be really um fast growing number of people that are diagnosed with it so I think it's important to kind of just talk about it quickly um so the main symptom of thyroid cancer is a neck lump um now I've had lots of questions about this because obviously I had a I have had a cancerous neck lump before I've had a cancerous lump so um I have a main Instagram page that kind of covers me health stuff and I get lots of people messaging me things and one of the main questions I get asked is you know does a cancerous lump hurt does it does it move does it this does it this I don't want to say definitely this is what happens when you have like a lump and it has uh, cancer cells in it because each person is different and each case is different generally speaking though um, and in my experience it's a very hard lump it doesn't move um, and it's not painful. So that's kind of like the, the rule of three, I think, to say. However, if you have a lump, even if it's painful, even if it's move, movable, even if it's soft, if you have it for like a week or two weeks, go to the doctor. Don't, don't ever take a chance. It's just always best to get things checked out. But I would say if you have a lump and it's hard, it doesn't move and it's not painful, don't wait a few weeks go to the doctor straight away it probably isn't anything but just don't don't mess around with like with your health um so that's the main symptom a neck lump um on top of that the other symptoms that people typically get is um a hoarse voice so because you're getting a lump on your on your throat 
things to do with your throat tend to be the symptoms for thyroid cancer, like early on symptoms, so difficulty swallowing, um, a hoarse voice, a sore throat, a stiff neck, kind of things like that. Um, I didn't really have any of those symptoms, ironically. I had a neck lump and I had, I actually um, had a lump in my collarbone as well, um, which I only realised when I, when I went to the GP about... Um, the neck lump um but I also had like a lot of hormone changes I had uh, nausea I had vomiting I had kind of a sore skin and muscle feeling like as though you were getting the flu I had that constantly um and the thing about the neck lump so I think if you get a lump elsewhere in the body it, it, it's often quite prominent a neck lump with thyroid cancer can because it's very slow growing and because it's on your neck and the thyroid is relatively flat or like is it an organ? Gland, sorry. It's a relatively flat gland. The lump can appear quite flat. So it's not always obvious to see at first. Um, so I was diagnosed really late. Um, I'd been going to the GP for months and months and months. Like it was ridiculous saying something's not right, something's not right. Um, and by the time I was diagnosed, unless I pointed it out it still wasn't even that obvious that I had a neck lump. Once I pointed it out, everyone was like, oh my God, yeah, how did you not notice that? But because it's on your neck and because the thyroid is relatively flat, it looks more like your neck is swollen or like your neck is, you've got like, I don't want to say a fat neck, but that's what mine looked like. Like I had like a, like suddenly quite a thick neck at the front when I hadn't before. So I think that's important to know. Um, it's not going to just be a very small lump. Like it's not going to be, you know, sometimes if, if people find like breast cancer lumps, they'll say it's the size of a pea or size of a grape. It's, it's not. It's going to be the size of your thyroid typically, or it's going to appear quite flat. However, if you do find any size lump in your neck, go and get checked. But I'm just kind of saying from my personal experience, it didn't look like your typical I mean typical lump, there's no such thing as a typical lump, but it it, it looks, and, and everybody else that I've seen that's been diagnosed with thyroid cancer, when you look back at the photos, it looks like your neck is swollen almost. One of the ways that I realised that I had a neck lump is because I had a necklace that suddenly wouldn't lie straight like a necklace normally would drop off your drop off your neck and kind of down in a well gravity would pull it down and this was like curving round because my neck obviously was swelling out I had this lump so just keep an eye out to any changes and you throw any changes in your neck um and additionally like I mentioned I had a lump in my collarbone lumps in your armpit lumps in your collarbone go and get them checked out straight away um the other thing that I just want to mention in terms of thyroid cancer which I find is so important because I didn't know and if I had known I probably would have been diagnosed a lot sooner is that thyroid cancer can't be diagnosed through blood tests so if you go to your doctor with a neck lump um and they do blood tests and they say it's fine if you're not happy keep pushing if you have a, if you have a lump and they aren't telling you what that lump is keep pushing thyroid cancer can typically i, I mean i'm i'm not an expert i'm a patient but i'm i'm going off what i know what i've heard thyroid cancer needs to be diagnosed with an ultrasound or a biopsy so i had both i had a an ultrasound and they didn't like the look of it so they sent me for a, like a a fine needle biopsy so don't, I don't want to say don't be palmed off because I hate feeling like I'm accusing doctors of not being caring. But if you're going to the doctors and you have a lump and they keep telling you that it's nothing, which is what happened with me, don't feel like you can't push it. Don't feel like you you have to agree with them. It's your body. They aren't, I think because they're in like a position almost of, of power and, and you know, and, and they are the doctor and you're the patient it's often you feel like maybe like they're a teacher and you're a pupil and you have to agree with them you actually don't you can't actually question them and you can't actually ask for a second opinion and you can say I'm not happy with this um and if I'd known that you know I, I probably would have been diagnosed a lot sooner so if you're going and they're saying well we did a blood test and it's fine and you have a thyroid neck lump keep pushing um yeah 
The good news is thyroid cancer is very, very slow grown. Most types, there's, there's four types. Um, papillary is the most common. Um, it's very slow grown, which is um, good for me because I was diagnosed so late. Um, and most people, they, they go and they have surgery and they're fine. Um, and you just basically have to readjust to life without thyroid, which I won't lie, that is that is difficult. Um, but people who have um, hypothyroidism um, and have part of the thyroid removed will know as well. It, it's, it's difficult adjusting to life on medication for the rest of your life. But um, I think I've rattled on enough about that. I could literally talk about it all day because obviously it's... A big part of my life if you do have any other questions about that like I mentioned I have a main Instagram account so it's um it's Thyka Spoonie 5 which is like Thyka thyroid cancer um I will I think that account is linked in like the bio of the stalked Instagram but if it isn't I will link it um and on that Instagram account, I have a blog which is totally dedicated to me health health conditions. Um, it's I've had that for about three years now. There's so many details on there, so many stories. Like I talk about what it's like in radiation, what it's like being on leave with Roxon, um, my diagnosis journey. The whole thing is on there. So if you you are interested in it, go and have a look. Um, and the other thing is that Instagram that I have is purely there to kind of help people who are in a similar boat. So if you're going through diagnosis or you're you're worried that something's wrong, just drop me a message. Um, because like the Instagram community really has been a huge lifeline for me um, going through like cancer diagnosis and treatment and life afterwards. So um, don't be shy just yeah drop me a message um okay it's past 10 minutes now so I'm sorry if you've jumped in and you're looking for the true crime I would go ahead another five minutes because I have one more thing to talk about um yeah so the second condition that I want to talk about it is also ironically awareness month for this um is a chronic UTI and this is another condition that I have um I developed it well they think I developed it from kind of a side effect from the radiation that I had a few years ago it's essentially um a UTI so a urinary tract infection that has gone untreated and has spread into the um bladder lining or further it can spread to your kidneys um it can spread yeah it can spread quite far um unfortunately because of inadequate uh, testing measures by most doctors there are lots of women who are developing chronic UTIs and it is massively debilitating um and it causes incredibly painful uh side effects incredibly uh, symptoms sorry and it causes pain flares so typically if you have a UTI a chronic UTI you'll go through maybe a few days when you're fine and then you'll have a terrible time and then you'll get a few days when you're fine um so I'm I'm now being treated by a specialist for this condition I'm on long-term antibiotics and painkillers and things the irony is that like the crazy thing is I technically still have cancer and yet that doesn't really affect me day to day at all um I've had my treatment I'm now just waiting for kind of my bloods to settle and things the thing that bothers me the most every day, the thing that literally, if I'm saying like I can't record or I can't do uni work and stuff, typically is my bladder condition, um, which is ridiculous when you think that I developed it as a side effect of radiation. Um, and lots of women don't have radiation and get this, they just have a UTI, it isn't treated properly, it spreads and it causes like lifelong problems and lifelong symptoms. So I've been on antibiotics for this for almost two years. It'll be two years in November, which is just ridiculous. Um, so, you know, this condition, it's very complex. I could literally talk about it until the cows come home because I'm really passionate about changing the way that UTIs are tested. Um, the kind of the theory is with, with the doctors that I'm being treated by now is that dip tests so when you wean in a pot and somebody dips a stick in it's not working it's not picking up a lot of UTIs and 
throw in a three-day course of antibiotics when you don't know the strain of the bacteria also isn't working. You, the symptoms are going away and then they're coming back. So I won't talk too much about this because I really could go on and on and on. Um, but if you are interested more, um, kind of you, there's there's various Instagram pages you can look up. Um, there's a chronic UTI doctor who's really good. Um, you can also Google Professor Malone Lee. He is the specialist in the UK. Um, he is like the doctor that whose clinic I'm under now. Um, yeah and again I have things about this on my blog and lots of things about this on my Instagram at thigaspoony5 there's lots of people I follow on there that I can if you're going through something like this or you think you might have a chronic UTI I can pass other accounts on here that might be useful so do just messages if you have any questions about this because it really is it's really important to me to raise awareness about both of these conditions because basically both of them I am still ill now because I was diagnosed with something too late or it wouldn't have been this bad if I was diagnosed a lot earlier so I don't want other people to go through the same thing um yeah (laughs) so just one more quick thing very sorry about all the health chat um obviously we are in a pandemic and you may not know this, I know a lot of my listeners are from America, so I'm sorry, but in the UK we are going through a cancer crisis. A lot of cancer treatment has been stopped because of the pandemic. I'm not going to get into our government and, you know, how stupid I think they are, but they are focusing solely on COVID. Cancer treatment has been stopped. Cancer patients are losing um, clinical trials. They are having chemotherapy pushed back I went I mean for me I'm, I'm just getting blood tests at the moment but just to put it in perspective I'm supposed to have a blood test every three months and I went around nine months without even having a blood test just because of COVID so things are not working at the minute and the cancer community is suffering they've estimated that there will be I think they've said around 35,000 deaths from cancer in the next four years as a backlog from the fact that they stopped treatment. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm kind of constantly trying to raise money for Cancer Research UK at the moment who are trying to get this treatment back up and trying to support people, trying to fund clinical trials. So I am cancelling my Patreon at the minute if you were a Patreon member or you were thinking about it, please give your money to Cancer Research UK instead um, because they they just need it very desperately at the minute. Um, if you weren't on Patreon, if you weren't thinking about joining it, if you have a spare pound, a spare five pound, a spare dollar, please think about donating it to, even if it's not Cancer Research UK, if you're in America, um a similar charity in America, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know the names of them, um, or if you're in the UK, again, Macmillan, desperately needs money. Um, but that's it, I'm done, my health rant, <laughs> I have finished talking about it, and let's talk about some true crime instead. So I think about a week ago, um, I posted that I was planning on doing an episode, and I posted a photo from the case that we're going to be talking about today and I did say if anyone can guess what the case is I will do like a shout out only one person commented and only one person got it right (laughs) so well done I'm going to try and pronounce this correctly um Bronwyn Faye this you are right that is Sophie's house because this week we're going to be talking about the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier um what I thought would do as usual is look at the case and the circumstances, kind of an overview of what happened and then look at like, you know, the psychology, the profile sort of things behind it um, and kind of like what I think about it. Um, two things before I, before I get into the case. Firstly, this case has been associated with people who have... Um, I don't want to give too much away, but basically there is a suspect for this case who has tried to sue people in the past for slander. So anything I say in here is my opinion. It's speculation. I'm not 
saying anything is true I'm not saying this is fact this is this this is literally just a true crime podcast and I'm giving my opinion it's just speculation so that's that um and the second thing is that um I have taken a lot of information on this case because it really isn't that well covered which is kind of the cases that I do like to bring on this podcast bring awareness to ones that really haven't been covered and kind of um get people talking and thinking about them um there is a really amazing podcast that covered this case which is where I've taken I would say a huge chunk of the case notes and case facts from I have been in touch with the creators of that podcast and they are happy for me to use this information so if you find this case interesting and and this kind of small um details that I've taken I'm I'm really just going to do a brief overview there is an amazing podcast on Amazon Audible and it's called West Cork um it's hugely in-depth it's brilliant the way it's edited is brilliant it's so fascinating to listen to it's a whole account of of Sophie's murder um they have interviews from the locals they have interviews from the main suspect um yeah so I will link that on me Instagram um if you're not on Instagram it's called West Cork so uh, W-E-S-T c-o-r-k um it is on audible so you do need an account to listen um i think that there's always an offer on audible where you can get i don't know if it's seven or 30 day free trial um and you get a free credit you don't even need a credit to listen to this if you just have an audible account this is a free podcast to listen to on audible um so if you have audible already you, you don't need to wait for your monthly credit you can go on and download and listen to it all now if you don't have audible you can go and join um for the, like the 30 i think it's 33 days um and get a credit for a book but also get this podcast for free um yes so as the title of that podcast may have given away this case takes place in county cork in ireland um and the murder took place in 19 19- 96 but the investigation has been carried out over decades only really reaching a conclusion last year so sophie toscant plantier was born in france in 1957 she was a television producer who had one son from a previous relationship and she had uh, recently in the last few years married a successful french film producer daniel toscant plantier Um, Aside from her home in France, which she uh, shared with her husband and her son when he came to stay with her, Sophie had a holiday cottage in the town of Skull, which is in west, kind of like the west of County Cork Island. So the cottage that she owned there is beautiful. You can see pictures of it. It's actually the picture that I put on Instagram last week. Um, It's a really gorgeous um white stone cottage it's it's huge it's like on the cliff edge it's overlooking the Atlantic Ocean um according to the details from West Cork podcast they go into this in in like really brilliant deal but it it looks like so I mean people might wonder why why she chose to have a holiday cottage in Ireland and it looks like she went there I think they say she went there like a trip when she was in school or something and she just fell in love with Ireland um and she was she, it seems like she was quite like um she liked her own space she liked her own time and she liked to just get away um and spend time in Ireland um in this it's very remote as well where her cottage is it's really remote I mean Cork is small anyways I think um or relatively small in terms of like population of people but skull looks tiny um and very rural so from all the reports um it seems like sophie was well liked in the town people knew her it seems like maybe she kept herself to herself when she was there um but interviews that they have on on the West Cork podcast with locals and i think there was a pub that she went to quite a lot and actually um I think that pub was like the last place she was seen everybody seems to speak really fondly of her 
So in December 1996, a few days before Christmas Eve, Sophie flew to school on her own. So this account is slightly confusing. I know some people might think, why did she go on her own? Why did she go on holiday a few days before Christmas on her own? But they cover this on West Cork and basically it looks like she'd asked a few people she wanted to go to Cork or maybe she had to go there for some reason to fix something in the house. It's There's lots of different reports and obviously this is from the 90s so things, you know, aren't crystal clear. Um, but it looks like she had actually asked a few people if they wanted to go and because it was so close to the holidays, nobody could so she thought she would go on her own. Um, it also looks like her son was with maybe his father over Christmas and her husband was busy so she wanted to go and and spend Christmas somewhere that she loved because she was going to be on her own for it so she went to her cottage in Ireland and there were apparently plans that her and her husband were going to meet up together I can't remember where I feel like it was somewhere like um maybe another holiday house that they had in France but it was another holiday home possibly I've got it in my head South Africa but that might be completely wrong but they were going somewhere and they were going to have a nice like holiday over New Year. Um, it also there's been there was reports that she was trying to arrange like a really nice Christmas present for her husband so it doesn't seem like she'd gone to Ireland because of an argument or because of something sinister or negative relating to her family life. It looks like um I mean, so I'm I'm from like a, a blended family, so a family where you have children that spend time with different people, and it isn't unusual for a parent who isn't seeing their children on Christmas to go and do something on their own. It might seem like alien to a family that always spends Christmas together, but to me that doesn't seem strange. I'm just saying that because I think a lot of people, when they look at this case, think, why on earth would she go to Ireland on her own? But... If our son is with our father um, and our husband is busy, he's a film producer, um, she has a nice holiday home, she loves that part of the world, why, why wouldn't she go there? So I don't think that that's unusual, that's never really stuck out to me as a clue, if you want. Um, so, what can be pieced together? Again, I took a lot of this from West Cork and a lot of this is from various different sources. It's a small town. Not that many people knew Sophie very well. Like they knew of her, she lived there. People had pleasantries with her and things, but this is all pieced together from people that have kind of spotted her or spoke to her or seen her. Um, on the 22nd of December, Sophie was had arrived in Skull. She went around on some walks. Um, there was like a... a three castle point she went up at she did a little bit of shopping um she was apparently in some clothes shop she picked up some groceries and then she went to the pub that I mentioned before and she so I think the the, the owner of that pub was the last person to speak to her she had something to eat she had something to drink and she said to him that she would come back for a Christmas Eve party that he was throwing and then she went back to her cottage and from kind of the look of the setup when the police have gone in the next day it looks like she was sitting at a kitchen table um drinking wine and reading from a poetry book and the poetry book from what I've heard was like face down on a page like um like open so it looked as though maybe she'd just put it down um yeah at some point the next morning one of Sophie's neighbours is leaving to do some Christmas shopping and they think that they see a large doll or a mannequin and then they realise that it's a body. They go and call the police or the guard, sorry. Um, and yeah, the guards discover that Sophie is lying at the bottom of, I want to say drive, but it's more like a dirt track from a house because it is, it is in the countryside. It's really rural, so it's like a dirt track down from a cottage. She's found at the bottom near the gate um, and she had been beaten to death. She was found wearing a t-shirt, like a bed t-shirt, leggings, walking boots. Her dressing gown was found near the body. She wasn't wearing it, but it was like lying next to her. So the post-mortem would eventually show that Sophie was killed by beating from a variety of objects. Um, so 
it's varied obviously it can't be 100 percent sure which objects there was some that obviously had been used in the attack so i think that there was a large like concrete breeze block nearby covered in blood there was a large rock nearby which was covered in blood some of the wounds have been speculated that it was committed by like somebody wearing a boot like a doc martin um her head wounds were so severe that part of her skull was visible at one point and the uh, pathologist at the time of sophie's death uh reported that the earth beneath her body where she was found had been indented when the body was moved which implies that she was intact where she was lit where she was laying where she was found and with some force i mean that really just sends chills down my spine honestly um the motive seemed unclear and there was no evidence of sexual assault on sophie's body or theft from her property so two motives straight away you know that you would typically look at with a with a deceased female who lives alone theft um interrupted burglary often can escalate um or attempted uh rape again can escalate to violence two things that might escalate to violence there was no signs of them um i'm just quickly going to mention this separate theory because i do find this interesting i don't i'm not sure i don't think that this is this is true i have another kind of idea but i want to mention it because if you've ever listened to the podcast the staircase or you've seen the staircase documentary or you've followed that case i've really followed that case closely and i am really torn on the staircase i am honestly i I find that if you've never if you never i don't want to give anything away but go and listen to the staircase go and watch the staircase and you'll understand what i'm talking about if you do if you have seen it you'll know what i mean by the owl theory um i've even been to like a talk by his um attorney david rudolph and, and heard everything that he has to say and it's just fascinating but there is a separate theory on this Sophie case, which is covered again in West Cork very briefly, that Sophie wasn't murdered, but instead died from wounds, specifically kicking, inflicted by, um, I'm not sure if it was a pony or a horse, in the field nearby where she lived. Um, some of her neighbours kept their horses or their ponies in like a field next to a house, Um, because obviously it was a holiday home she wasn't there all the time so she didn't really use the land and apparently Sophie would go out and feed them or pet them and something happened and she was kicked it I mean it doesn't apparently it doesn't tally up very well with the wounds the staircase is different because when you look at the wounds and you look at other people that have been attacked by an animal it, it kind of tallies up a bit more so I don't I don't think that's what happened but I really like when people are looking at all the all the aspects, really focus on the crime, what could have happened rather than zoning in on one thing and saying it was this. Um, so I, I did want to mention that because I do think it's an interesting idea and I think, um, yeah, it just really, really made me think of the staircase. So in terms of other suspects, there has been one main suspect throughout the case and that is a British man ian bailey who had moved to skull years and years and years or earlier i can't remember the exact amount but i'm sure it was something like 10 around about 10 years he had moved to skull he had fallen in love with the woman um they had married and and they lived together um he was at the time of the crime a freelance journalist he'd been by all accounts a successful journalist in London um and a variety of things happened and he moved to Ireland to kind of um get away from it all they explain this really well in the I think it's the first episode of West Cork is called blow-ins which is like when people move to um it's like a common phrase I've heard it like said about towns like in Cornwall and things people from London blow into like these rural villages to get away from city life so it explains more in that episode why he ended up in West Cork um or in Skull sorry but he um he was a journalist apparently he was struggling with his career at the time the interesting thing is this is one of the first so if we talk about crime we talk about things that stand out here let's call them red flags all right just for the sake of it the first red flag for me about 
in Bailey is that he was the first journalist to arrive at the scene and apparently he arrived very quickly. Um, he also published a lot of articles about the murder. Um, and it's it's disp- so this this little this little um thing that I'm about to say now it's very disparaged because there was a witness and then they have like recanted their statement and things and then they've said that they were pressured to sit. It's a whole thing, but possibly he was seen walking around near the scene of the murder as well the night before. But definitely he was apparently the first journalist or one of the first people who arrived at the scene and he had quite a successful little flurry of articles published about the murder um in Bailey uh over the course of the last two decades has been arrested and charged with Sophie's murder I think this has happened twice so initially um the guards arrested Ian again you I I don't want to go too much into this because West Cork covers his kind of charging and the whole issue with the guards and an issue with with France because France are obviously involved Sophie was a French um citizen so I don't want to go into this too much because I feel like I'm just going to be repeating what they cover and if you want to listen to it it's I don't want to ruin it but essentially Ian was arrested by the guards charged the charges didn't stick and he has since been charged in France and France are currently trying to extra extradite him is that the way he said uh, extradite him to face the charges so he's he's been charged with her murder in France from what I can tell at the minute this is this has gone up to like this happened recently in, in 2019 um France have charged him if he leaves Ireland he'll be extradited but um Ireland won't kind of hand him over that's what I think is happening at the minute so he has been charged with that murder which I think is interesting but not um by Irish or UK law so again that's something that West Cork covers really well because in each country um charging and um criminal cases they're so different and things can really vary and things like forensics and and how much those kind of things come into it and whether a jury is involved so again go and listen to West Cork to find out kind of more about the details about his um criminal kind of case but what I want to focus on as normal is like the psychology of the crime um again I just want to say this is just speculation it's just my opinion based on things that I have researched and studied obviously this is um what I study um so the main thing that has always stuck me with Sophie's death and I think the main thing that has always stuck with anyone that's spoken about this is that this seems very unplanned it doesn't seem like I know there was some initial speculations that perhaps because Sophie's husband was very you know very successful and very famous that and he had an alibi he's always had an alibi he's never really been considered a suspect as far as I'm aware I think maybe initially you would always you would typically go to the husband straight away um a husband or partner but he had a a very tight alibi so then there was speculation that perhaps he had sent a hitman or he'd hired somebody to kill Sophie I just don't understand why a hitman would um would have killed somebody in the way that they killed them that's their job it's messy do you know what I mean? I mean that's it sounds a bit morbid saying it, but they 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 do it so that they are kind of untraceable. That is their job. That's you know that's their expertise. I can't see this being a hit. It just doesn't look like it. It looks like a very unplanned and sudden and spontaneous crime. Um, and then yeah, so I think perhaps. The, the theories are was she awoken by somebody at her door did she hear somebody outside did they have an argument did things escalate um the use of weapons that the murderer used um were close by so it's things that they've just seen things that they've just picked up and again that's not planned that's like erratic and a pull impulsive behavior 
um it's like frenzied almost the way that it looks like um there's also suggestions that Sophie was running away and she fell um she was found by the gate so that would make sense was she running down to the gate was she trying to run like I mentioned she was the body was found by a neighbour's and although Sophie's house is very remote it doesn't look like our neighbour's house is too far away it looks like I'm sure they've said in like different like kind of articles that I've seen that um people heard screams on the evening so that gives you an idea about distance especially in the countryside especially by the sea you have to think about things like that the sea can be quite noisy to hear a scream would suggest that somebody might have been close by um so to be found by the gate it looks like I mean all it's all assumptions and speculations but was she running away was she trying to get out of the gate um yeah a a beaten again a beaten crime crime of, of somebody literally um attacking somebody with weapons like rocks to death indicates that the perpetrator was acting like i'd said impulsively um and it also i mean there's various different theories about weapons and and what each weapon means and um what that means in terms of the the person that's committed the crime um it, it it doesn't seem like when you look at when you look at the psychology of things like that like perhaps the person was that well known to Sophie when you look at crimes of passion um so crimes of passion it could be things like I mean the most common one is romantic relationship when you're talking about a crime of passion but a crime of passion could also be over money or over you know a variety of different things the passion doesn't have to come from a romantic relationship but typically that's that's what it stems from um and you see things like strangling stabbing um throat being cut in america shooting obviously because of the access to guns is very um common particularly in uh, murder suicides uh, again in romantic relationships but beaten um not typically that common um in in a crime of passion so <clears throat> again that kind of points towards the fact that this person possibly didn't know Sophie that well again I'm just speculating just talking about kind of the theory and things behind things um yeah so the level of like wounds and um kind of the way in which Sophie was beaten indicates that the person might have been in a rage given that there seems to be no obvious motive it's important to consider other reasons uh for why the killer was in a rage so like i mentioned crime passion money is a huge one um honor killings there would be a crime of passion it's like you know things to do with family things to do with love things to do with money things that get people angry if those things weren't present what else might have caused that person to go into a rage so then you're looking at things like mental health issues or substance abuse um yeah so a little bit more detail about sophie and how she was found so she was found laying um on her back looking upwards and her fingers were broken so because most of the wounds with kind of like the bricks and the the, the rocks and the, the breeze block was against her head that kind of to me my first thought was that she put her hands in front of her face which would be a natural response if something was coming towards your head um even in shootings if somebody is aiming at your head it's really common to put your hand it's just defensive it's just trying to protect yourself um so the the thing about that that I wanted to mention was that her fingers were broken so she was putting her hands in front of her face it it sounds as though the killer the the murderer was above her or looking at her when they were killing her um and in this case it just seems very cold and impersonal and I'm going to mention something that gets talked about a lot in in crime scenes and in murders but a lot of the time if somebody if there's a crime of passion if if there's like that rage that stems from something and the killer knows the victim it's really common afterwards and and you'll have heard of this and it's always in films and things that they would cover the victim's face 
And some people think that's because they're like trying to protect the victim. It's it's not normally that. It's not it's normally that when that rage subsides, they are ashamed of what they've done. That that they, they feel ashamed and they don't want to look at what they've done. And if you know the victim that's a lot more common than if you don't. If you don't, it's kind of like an impersonal thing. Sometimes they don't even, it's just something that's there. Do you know what I mean? If you know that person or if you have loved that person, if that person was in your family and then you realise what you've done after the rages subside, to cover them is really common. The fact that this person, from the sounds of it, has beaten her while looking at her and then they haven't covered it, and I'm, I'm mentioning that because her dressing gown was found next to her. So in theory, they could have covered her face, but they didn't. The dressing gown was just left and she was just left. And I think that that, to me, suggests that this person didn't know Sophie well enough to have loved her, basically. Um. So yeah, another thing about clothing that sticks in my mind um, is that Sophie was in her pyjamas. So I kind of mentioned on this briefly. She was in like a t-shirt pyjama. She was in like legging. I think like long johns. So like long um, pyjama pants. Um, She had a dressing gown with her. Obviously it was next to her body. I think what's assumed in, in kind of that aspect is that she was wearing it. And when she's run it's being caught in like the the, the the brambles, the thorns on the side of the lane. If you have a look at the picture you can kind of see how that could have happened. Um, and she was wearing lace-up boots. So bear with me, because this is just like a little idea that I had in my head, something that kept turning in my head about these boots. She was wearing lace-up walking boots. That's what I've read in like the reports, obviously, I don't know. Um, right, so I lived in a village once in the countryside, and if I woke up in the night and needed to go downstairs, either like I heard something at the front door or I needed to go at the kitchen, I would, as Sophie did, put a dressing gown on, but I wouldn't put walking boots on, I'd put slippers on. Does this, I hope this is making sense to people. However, if I heard something outside, like or I was going out to feed me rabbit or something, I would put wellies on, like welly boots or outside shoes. So this could just be nonsense and this could just be me going off on a tangent and she lived in a holiday home so she didn't have many things with her. You know, she'd come from France. Did she own slippers? Were they in the house? There's so many questions that I'm just kind of overlooking here. But that has always kind of been in my mind. Why was she wearing boots? Um, so like I mentioned, maybe she didn't have slippers, maybe I'm just talking nonsense, but maybe she was going outside, maybe it was her intention to go outside, was she going to answer the door, she had to sit down and lace those boots up, from from what I've heard they were like boots that would take a few minutes to put on, not something that you would pull on quickly, so was she going to feed the horses in a field, couldn't she sleep, um, she had things going on in her mind, she was sat at the table, she was reading her poetry, did she decide to go for a walk? Um, we don't know if she was in bed, we don't know if she was at the table, she could have left that book there and gone up to bed. Um, the main thing is something, something drew her outside, whether it was something in herself or whether it was something already outside, something made her go outside and I think the fact she was wearing those boots shows that, that she was going outside, um, and whatever drew her outside, um, is, is a big key in this, and we don't know, and I think the likelihood is that it was the killer, um, yeah, so something else that I want to go over is geographical profiling, because of the location of this case, I think it's 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 really important. So geographical profiling is kind of another tool used in kind of criminology and things. Um, and basically, what it what it means is um, when people commit murders, and specifically like serial killers, they don't just choose a location at random. That pin on a map, um, the place that they pick the victim up, the place that they leave the victim, the area in which they are hunting. Um, it means something, it's important, location means something, just as forensics means something, just as MO means something. And there are several aspects in this case that are, I think, highly important 
geographically speaking. So this is a small county in terms of people, like I've mentioned. It's a rural community. It's a small town. It's the sort of place where most people know of everybody. Like you might not be friends with everybody, but most people in the town knew of Sophie. And she only had a holiday home there. Um, So everybody kind of is aware of everybody that lives in that community. So blending in is not going to be very easy. Um, even when tourism is considered, um, it would have. I think it would have come up if somebody had been staying in another holiday cottage around about that same time. I'm sure that that would have been considered by the police, um, and it would have stood out. So, the fact that that's never been mentioned to me suggests that there wasn't anybody else kind of staying, a new person staying in the area. Which if you're thinking about the the theory that Sophie's husband um, sent somebody, they have to stay somewhere. They they, they would have been seen, you would would think. Um, Yeah. So another aspect is the the method of killing. So this was a horrible murder. It was like a horrific, frenzied attack. The fact that there was blood all over the murder weapons, the the, the breeze block and things, you would think that that, that the, the, the murderer would have blood just from the fact that there was blood all over that that crime scene all over Sophie's body and the the way in which she was attacked so that person would at some point have needed to change clothes they might have had a shower they might have disposed of the clothes if there was any defensive wounds which it looked as though Sophie had tried to defend herself they might need to tend to those and all while remaining unseen. So the murder likely happened in the early hours. So darkness was a good hiding tool. Um, but that again, geographically speaking, it was dark, it was night, this is a remote place. That person must have had some knowledge of that area to be able to find the way to that house in the dark, to have been able to chase Sophie down that road and then in the dark again go and find shelter or go and find a house or go back to wherever they were staying in the dark they must have had some geographical knowledge of that area um did they have a car did they travel on foot was there an accomplice um i mean the accomplice side seems unlikely given like the sudden kind of um opportunistic kind of feel of this crime but these are all things that you need to consider um yeah I I think I think looking at the location and and listening to what everybody says about the location obviously I have never been there the fact that this was an opportunistic killing if it was in a city if it was in a really populated area could somebody who like I mentioned before was was going through like a psychotic break or was um had substance abuse problems suddenly bumped into Sophie and just attacked her it doesn't seem likely that that would happen here because most locals and guards say that you would need to know where you were going because it was so hard to find Sophie's house um so again it points towards um the fact that 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 the killer knew knew of Sophie's house, knew of Sophie or knew enough about that area to be able to find their way out of it and find the way to a shelter without being seen. Okay, so that's kind of a little bit of an overview of the of the psychology um, in, in general terms speaking. My kind of theory, why I wanted to, to put this on the podcast um, is... Um, in terms of it being like a my thoughts on stalking, that was a long rambling way of saying that. Um, basically, why am I covering the case on the podcast? If you go back to episode one and you remember that I've talked about stalking typologies before and the different types. Um, oh, lost my voice there. The different types of stalker um, and that it isn't just somebody a stranger sees a woman on the street and starts stalking her because they fall in love with her it's not always like that it very very rarely is like that they're typically um I mean there's lots of different stalking typologies the one that I like the one that I think has the most um weight and is used 
most frequently in in uh, stock and risk risk assessment and things is Mullins five type of stalkers. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back to episode one because I go into all the different um, types, the five types, and each and I explain each one. But essentially, I don't think that the perpetrator had an obsession with Sophie in terms of they were looking for a romantic relationship. I don't get the feeling that this is a rejected stalker. I don't think this is an ex-partner. Um, but I do think that the perpetrator might have had an obsessive idea about who Sophie was and what connection she could offer. So, like I said, I've listened to Westcock and I've listened to the podcast a few times just because I find this case really fascinating. And things that have jumped out to me is the fact that Sophie's husband was a well-known film producer. He was famous. He was producing films in France. He was well-known. Sophie was well-known because of that. Sophie worked in television um, as well. If the perpetrator was interested in having a career in the film industry, having a screenplay published, um, you know, I think there is a possible motive there. I think the fact that um, they might have been going to talk to Sophie about give this to your husband. Can you please give this to your husband? Think, and I know that might seem that might seem strange, but think about um, the Manson murders. Charles Manson, that the house that um, Sharon Tate was living in, the reason that that house was was picked by Charles Manson, is or Charlie Manson, um, is because he wanted to have a record, like a CD, published, and he knew that a record producer lived there. That person just happened to move out before uh, Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski moved in. But apparently Charlie Manson was going to that house a few times in the kind of months leading up to the murders to get this CD published. Narcissists don't be liked, told no. They assume everything that they produce is amazing and brilliant and why wouldn't you want to publish it? So in my mind, and I know that this might be a long shot, the fact that Sophie worked in television, the fact that she was married to a very successful film producer, that just seems important to me. That seems like I think that that could be a motive. And in terms of what type of stalking that might fall into... I think that you're going to be looking at a resentful stalker. So most they're most commonly displayed within workplaces where someone is overlooked for a promotion or it could be arguments very common like within neighbours who think that they are in the right and their neighbour's in the wrong. And that type of stalking is born from the anger that somebody feels that they are missing out or they believe that they've missed out or they have been humiliated or mistreated by another person or an organisation. So if we, like I mentioned, um, I agree with like Mullins uh, definitions on stalkers and he, that is his typology. So I'm just going to read you kind of what Mullins says about the resentful stalker. Um, because I think you'll see some themes from this case in it. I mean, I definitely can. Um, so Mullen says the initial motivation for stalking in the resentful stalker is the desire for revenge or to even the score. And the stalking is maintained by the sense of power and control that the stalker derives from inducing fear in the victim. Often resentful stalkers present themselves as the victim who was justified in using stalking to fight back against oppression, personal organisation. Um, and to me, I just think, when you look at this case, when you listen to West Cork, Ian Bailey has taken various newspapers to court to sue them for slander. He has injected himself in this investigation and portrayed himself repeatedly as a victim. Um, it just, yeah, I just... I'm going to go through some some other little like red flags we'll say from West Cork which have kind of led me to think about this. Um, so Ian Bailey has a history of violence, domestic violence with his partner. I'm not going to go too much into it um, but domestic violence and stalking have huge ties together. They are so frequently embedded and where there's a history of violence there's a potential for violence. It's 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 kind of all 
it's it's it matters I think a lot of people think domestic violence in the past doesn't matter but it does matter like violence can be used as uh, in the past can be used as a predictor of future violence so that to me is a red flag the fact that he apparently didn't have work at the time of this death and then suddenly Sophie dies and he has newspaper articles coming out and um is one of the first people on the on the scene it just suspicious that's all I'm going to say about it one of the main things is that in West Cork you will hear Ian Bailey towards the end trying to get interviews with other film producers he has written screenplays and that to me just shrieked out motive um he wanted to have screenplays published her husband was a film producer he takes it very seriously he thinks everything he writes um is good and 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 people need to read it um there are reports that he was keen to have an introduction with Sophie there are different interviews in West Cork where people have said oh yeah he was very keen to talk to Sophie he had been to our house before he had asked for an introduction again suspicious um so he knew our address he'd been to the property he had a history of walking around the area late at night drunk again I just think you know there was that one um person that said that they had seen him I know that's not like a solid witness statement at the minute um yeah another thing that really stuck out to me is that and and this hasn't been verified and kind of again I'm just speculating but there were reports that an Irish man and Ian Bailey had changed his name when he moved to to Skull to Owen um which is the Irish version of Ian so reports in France at Sophie's office that an Irish man was calling her and wanted to talk to her about something work related in the weeks before her death um I, I just think these things add up to something I just get like such a strong feeling that that could have been Ian um Ian was drinking very heavily at the pub the night of her death and although he lived with his partner there was a period of time when she said he wasn't in bed again just for me I just have a feeling that that means something um and obviously it obviously means something he has been charged with this crime in France um throughout West Cork I just get very strong narcissistic tendencies from him he name drops a lot he is very you know like strong sense of worth and grandeur and charisma um obsessed with status obsessed with success and like I say in the end he's kind of I'm sure in the in the last episode it's it's actually one of his trial dates and he is more interested in having an interview with somebody about a screenplay and I don't know I just think that that's for me that's a a strong a strong warning sign um injecting yourself into the into the crime it's it's so common um think about people like Ian Huntley he had tv interviews he was on the search parties it's really common for criminals it's it's not just kind of like an old wives tale it's really common for criminals to return to the scene of the crime to want to be involved in the crime um it comes from either a sense of the fact that they want to know how the case is going and if you know if they're a suspect but it also comes from the fact that narcissists are proud of their work um and mainly it comes from the fact that narcissists think that they are smarter than everybody else and unfortunately for a lot of narcissists and psychopaths that's kind of like their Achilles heel that's the weakness they are ruled by vanity and that vanity can unfortunately be costly um yeah so I just want to end with this kind of metaphor I think it kind of wraps everything up nicely um so this is this is from like um a a book on on violence and stalking that that I, I read the other day and I thought it just really puts everything into a clear picture um especially in terms of of thinking of motives and motives being uh around you know like the resentful stalker the motive being that they feel wrong that they feel like they're not that they've been overlooked for something and how that can turn to rage so 
imagine a narcissistic stalker as a, a resentful stalker as an inflated balloon so the tiniest prick can pop that balloon and send all of the air shooting out and that would create um not only the balloon to deflate but if you imagine that that person was the balloon it would draw attention it would cause shame it would cause humiliation and the individual on experiencing the shame and humiliation humiliation and the deflation will often turn to one emotion to eradicate themselves from that from that shame and that one emotion that they turn to is rage and not just any rage but the rage directed at whatever caused the balloon to pop so I think that just shows it just explains really nicely how something seemingly insignificant to somebody who isn't kind of fueled by narcissism or or fueled by um psychopathy or um you know that kind of um person how something so small as as just wanting to have something noticed wanting to have something appreciated wanting their ego to be inflated instead they are deflated it can it can shame can be a really powerful feeling and the wanting to get rid of shame can be huge especially in in things like stalking and and, uh, narcissists so yeah let me know your thoughts on this case because I think it's really interesting um and I'm going to admit, I'm going to put my hands up, my theory is probably biased because my research is on stalking and I think about stalking and I'm very passionate about uh, about stalking and stalking typologies. So, you know, I probably have a, have a bias, I'm not going to lie. So I would love to hear alternative theories. I'd love to hear what you think if you have heard about this case, if you've read about this case, if you've listened to West Cork um and if you haven't go and try and listen to it honestly it's just so brilliant it's really atmospheric I can't explain it it's just the way it's edited 100 times better than the way I edit um well I don't edit my podcasts um it's not recorded on a phone for a start it's really brilliantly made it's kind of like watching a series that's that's you feel like you're, you're watching something with the interviews and the music and the way that it's kind of edited together it's just it's just brilliant um so yeah definitely go and try and listen to that and do message me with your thoughts on this um yeah and that's kind of it for this episode unfortunately I don't have any film or tv recommendations uh this time I was trying to think I was racking my brain I have obviously been working like crazy the last month um or the last couple of months so I've been trying to watch like nicer things when I'm finished work and not um not so much true crime although saying that I do have one other podcast recommendation in the spirit of it being October tomorrow um and everything's going to be Halloween and spooky um I have been really enjoying listening to uh Let's Not Meet which is a true horror podcast um the host is really brilliant he finds reddit stories so like true things that people have written about on reddit and he kind of pieces them together and and reads them out and it's really creepy it's really spooky um because it's real so it's not like a paranormal one it's about it's about real people that you don't want to meet again um it is brilliant the one thing i'll say is don't listen to it alone at night which i did the other week because it'll just make you a paranoid mess um but yeah if you have any stalking um or true crime tv or film uh, recommendations message me them as well because uh i am on the lookout for something new to watch so yeah i will try and link everything i've talked about today on instagram i know i'm terrible at it anytime that i've said i'll link something and i don't please do flag me up because i am atrocious at it um but yeah i will try and be back in october with another uh episode and thank you for listening